So Ephesians chapter chapter six. So last week we have we talked about slavery, we talked about um, masters, we talked about uh, and being good employees, faithful employees, and faithful faithful employers. And so we'll let that be. For that would be if you want to recap on that or if you want to hear that it's all up on our website you can go check that out and I'm hope that, hoping you all are using the website when you need it to, to check things out or even to direct people to. Uh, I had the chance to even for a gentleman this week uh, met him just out of the blue in town and directed him to our website. It's a great place for people to figure out who we are and what we're about. So Sovereign Grace Statesboro spell out sovereign for them and because uh, if you don't know how to spell sovereign, who knows where you'll end up. Uh, so sovereigngracestatesboro.org and, and send them in, in that direction. So this morning we're, we're mainly going to be dealing with the verses 10 through, 10 through 13 as it's kind of going to be a, a, a good introductory for what we're going to talk about even uh, next week in talking about the armor of God. That's where we're at in the passage of uh, Ephesians 6. You can see that, that it is the the armor of God uh, passages, um, but instead of coming in this morning dressed up as a knight or something like that, I'm going to save that for next week. Uh, no, I won't do that, but uh, we'll talk about that next week. But when we read the passage, we're actually going to read the whole thing together because they're meant to be read in a, as a whole unit together. So let's start reading in uh, verse 10 together of Ephesians chapter 6. So look in your Bibles with me and read with me the Word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word once again. And we pray now that as we encounter your word, that your spirit will lead us and guide us, will empower us to see the truth of your word, 
to see where our strength lies, to see the, the nature and the deception of the enemy, and that we would be vigilant and strong in Christ to stand firm. And so this morning, would you open our hearts and our minds to your word, the work that only you can do. We trust in you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So when he comes to verse 10, and he starts off saying, finally, it's not necessarily the gasp of fresh air that maybe some of you all are thinking now that we're in, getting closer to the end of Ephesians 6. It's not a new idea necessarily that he's even sharing with the church in Ephesus, but in fact, finally, is actually a bringing together of the whole book. It's a bringing the whole letter together. It's like a crescendo of a song, the big part at the end of a song, like a uh, like a grand finale. It's not the climax of, of the book, but it's the crescendo of the whole letter that finally, as a church, as believers, now those who are in Christ because of His grace and have been driven by grace, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. And this has been the purpose, I think one of the purposes in the book to, as it's applied to, to the church is that we would persevere. We saw that later in the passage, that we would persevere and that we would be, we would be strong. You know, one thing that I, I, I think we, we miss sometimes about the Bible and how so many consider the Scripture to be irrevel, uh, irrelevant, irrelevant, thank you, uh, uh, that, that we, we miss the whole idea that the Scripture does not ignore reality. It does not ignore that life can be hard. It does not ignore suffering. It does not ignore pain. It does not ignore death. It doesn't give us this utopian idea of society, that everything is going to be okay. It doesn't give you that idea. The Bible is very real about sin and about death and suffering and toiling and thorns and and, and thistles. And this is a grace to us. This is a mercy of God. But in all of that mess that's happening in the world, I mean, ever since chapter 3 of Genesis, all the, the mess that's going on despite sin and temptation, suffering, pain, death, the Bible is also very clear that God has always been working. And that God is working to restore and to redeem a people for himself. And we're that. that that's us. We're that, we're that picture to the world. The restoration project of God. We're it. We're that picture. And this is what Ephesians is reminding us again. That he has not left us in this struggle with sin and flesh and temptation and suffering and pain on our own, but that he has given us everything in Christ pertaining to godliness. He has not held back from us. And so when he tells us to be be strong, we know he's going to back it up. Understand that we do not live in peace, and sometimes we, we get confused that we, that we live in peace, but we are caught up in a, in a great war, 
a great war between good and evil. And that's what this passage reminds us this morning. That behind all sin and all temptation is this, is this enemy. This, this enemy, this evil one, as verse 11 tells us. And that's the thing, we don't realize, most Christians don't, don't realize the, the severity of this, this struggle and this real battle that exists around us, as well as where our strength really lies. Where we stand firm. Where we run to for, uh, in temptation, in struggle, in suffering, in pain. Where do we go to? We want to address it in physical ways. We want to make ourselves better in, in physical ways by becoming a better person. And we try to conjure up and, and move ourselves and, and, and conform ourselves to some kind of external moral thing that might look good before the Lord. Finding no strength in the Lord. And this passage this morning all kind of pulls the, pulls the covers back a little bit turns the light on in the garage. You know, you go in your garage, you turn the light on and bugs scatter. Turns the light on in the garage and says, this is what's going on when the light's off. So we make war. There's a war going on. And so we make war in the strength of our Lord. We make war knowing our enemy and we make war putting on Christ. So like I said, this verse starts off this morning with this, with this imperative. Be Strong. Be strong. All of these things that I've taught you about who God is and what God is doing in the midst of the mess, what God is doing in the church, what God is doing in your family, be strong. Now this verb, be strong, is a passive verb. And the reason why it is passive, because it, it means that the strength does not derive from us, but it is a strength that is outside of us that makes us strong. So I can sit here and tell you all day long to be strong. Go work out. Read your Bible more. Pray, pray more. Be more diligent in the Word. Memorize Scripture. And we can talk about all those great disciplines all we want, but if the strength is in us, then we will fail. But this verse verb is passive, meaning the strength to endure, the strength to persevere in this life of suffering and pain and death is a strength that only comes from the Lord. In, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul prayed, or Paul, Paul said this in verse 16. He says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through your inner being. The riches of his glory, he is granting us to be strengthened in our inner being. The strength to endure, to face temptations, to handle pain and suffering and to persevere through suffering is not a strength of our own, but is a strength in dependence. A dependence in the Lord. A dependence in, in His strength, in the strength of His might. Now we can look all over the Scripture and see where, where God flexes His might. 
But I, I just want us to look back in Ephesians. And let's, let's look where God just flexes the strength of his might. We started out in, in chapter 1. In chapter 1, talking about how that God is sovereign. And God is omnipotent and all-powerful in his sovereign grace. And how that sovereign grace is worked out through the, this miracle of salvation. That salvation of His elect from the foundation of the world has been and will be accomplished through Jesus Christ. Which was according to the purpose of His will. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be undone. It goes on to say, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The, the forgiveness of all all of our sins lavished on us by His grace. In Him we have obtained an inheritance predestined according to the purpose of, of who will work all things out according to the counsel of His will. Power, mighty, strength. Verse 19 of chapter 1, Paul's prayer for the church. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? The immeasurable greatness of God's power is salvation. That is the, the strength of His might shown in salvation. The greatness of His power toward us who believe. Verse 2, or chapter 2, pulls it back even further. It unpacks it even more because then it, it doesn't just leave us where we were ourselves, that we were completely doomed to follow the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were living out the passions of our flesh. We were doomed, left to ourselves. But God, in verse 4, flexing his, his strength, the strength of His might, being rich in mercy and great love toward those uh, He loves and His elect, He sent His Son that even though we were dead in our sins, we read it this morning in chapter 5 of Romans, that even though we were completely dead and helpless and doomed in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. That is amazing. That is amazing grace. The marvel, the marvel of the strength and the might of God is His salvation toward us. The grace that He has extended to us through His Son. When we think of God's strength, we just want to go to the Exodus, don't we? We want to go to those big physical miracles. We want to point to that being, that's God being strong. That's God being miraculous. And that's God flexing His, his might and even, maybe even God in creation. We want to point to those things. And, and when we do that, particularly as believers, we miss out the, the, the real strength of His might to accomplish salvation the real strength of His might to bring about salvation and change and regeneration and restoration and rebirth in you, in me, in sanctification. His great love, His, his great mercy. And, and, and guys like John Newton got this. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. He, he wrote because he was just amazed by it. I was amazed. God, how could you save me? I'm such a wretch like me. He got it. The might of God, the strength of God is found in salvation of, of sinners. 
Creation's awesome, Exodus is great, and God was working a plan. But be marveled, amazed by his grace. His grace toward you. His sovereign grace toward you. So when we draw strength, when we draw strength we, from his, the strength of his might, let us apply the gospel to it. Let's, let's think about his salvation. Let's think about how he has overcome sin and death on our behalf that we can become children of God. So that we can become children of God. So our strength does not come from us. It comes from him. And can you think about, let me just think about how freeing that is. Think about how freeing that is. There's freedom there. It's God. It's God's strength. We just need to rely on it. We need to depend on it. That's why it tells us in verse 11, put on the full armor of God. And we'll, we'll talk more about that next week. We put on Christ. We remember what He has done. We remember that new identity, that new life that we have in Christ, that is, that is the strength. It's not you conjuring up and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You couldn't do it. Our strength comes from the Lord and how we make war, we must realize that our strength comes from Him. Our strength in this battle, our strength toward this enemy that we'll talk about in just a moment comes from the Lord. So stand firm. Stand strong. Our strength is not our own, but the strength of the Lord and under His might. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the reason why we, we need to be strong is because we're in a battle. We have an adversary that is hostile toward us, a.k.a. enemy. That underneath our temptations, these deceptions and falsehoods, is the devil, is an evil one. And this evil one, Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, the serpent, the dragon, the god of this age, and before Christ, as we saw in Ephesians 2, our former father. All the ways that we have ever heard him to be. He is this great deceiver and he's working to deceive us. In such deception. He's a professional artist of deception. He is the master illusionist tricking and deceiving his audience for his own pleasure. We have a real enemy. A real enemy that is, that is unseen. Now, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how we are children of the Enlightenment. We're children of the Enlightenment. It's a philosophy uh, that that's came around in the late 1600s to 1700s. We're children of this uh, Enlightenment period. One of the, the main philosophers came up with the line, I think, therefore I am. How many of y'all have heard that? I think, therefore I am. We've, most of us have heard that. Uh, came up by a guy named Rene Descartes, 
And, and this is what this means. It means that, that, meaning that all that I am and all that really exists in this world, so everything that I am and everything that exists in this world are only things that I can perceive, things that I can understand and things that I can comprehend. Right? So if it's only things that I can perceive, that I can understand, that I can observe, the enlightenment pretty much takes away anything that is of the spiritual realm in nature. I can't comprehend that. I can't see that. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It leaves no room for anything that is spiritual. If I can't see it, if I can't taste it, touch it, hear it, or observe it, it's not real. So this idea of, of demons and devils and spiritual warfare is completely inconsequential to me unless I'm going to a movie to watch it. Unless it's entertaining to me to, to watch it. And, and you're just crazy if you talk that way. Or if you believe those things. Now, now we're Christians, right? We, we, we believe the Bible, so we we. we hold to these passages. We, we believe in these passages, but guess what? We're still children of this enlightenment, and we still struggle with this reality. In fact, most of the time what we say is, yeah, I, I believe it, but it really doesn't have an impact on me. It has no real impact because my spiritual walk is my spiritual walk and my decisions and my, my thinking and what I want to do. We don't have categories in our American scientific enlightenment culture to define or to understand or even to deal with spiritual warfare. We haven't been gauged to deal with it. So we ignore spiritual realities or spiritual warfare, this battle that's taking place, and we only address the physical things. But the scripture is clear. The war that we have is not with flesh and blood, but it is with cosmic powers. They're the schemes of the evil one. Now, one of, the most, one of the most influential authors of the 21st, 20th century tapped into this idea, C.S. Lewis. Uh, if, if you're not a reader of C.S. Lewis, you ought to be. Great, wonderful books. And in a series of three books, he, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And uh, The Screwtape Letters is actually one of his most popular books besides the, the series that he was actually uh, tuning me out with, Chronicles of Narnia. Um, is, is one of the most popular books. In fact, most unbelievers actually read it, read this book, The Screwtape Letters. And, and he was inspired to, to write this book uh, one day while he was at a church service, kind of like what we're doing, where he was at a church service, and he began to look around, kind of like what I see. He began to look around, and he began to, to observe people. And he began able to see some dull, pale, you know, indifferent demeanors of people. And even look, he looked at the preacher and says, looked at the preacher and sees this guy is not preaching with life and vitality. And he began to ask the question, what in the world is going on here? What's, what's really taking place here? So in this book, the Screwtape Letters, he, he turned this perspective around of trying to ask the question, what's really going on? He turned it around saying, are asking, what if we could see temptation and distraction of our souls through the eyes of the other side? What if, what if, we, can, what if we can see through the eyes of, of the demons, and we can see through the eyes of the evil one? 
So he starts off this, this book in the screw tape letters and just the, like the second line of the preface. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. So there's an error. The other is to believe and to feel an excessively an unhealthy interest in them. These are the people who would say that the devil made me do it and believe it. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialistic or magician with the same delight. So in this book, he, 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 he basically gives this story between two demons. There's two demons in this book. One's name is Screwtape, and the other one is Wormwood. And Screwtape is mentoring Wormwood. And by the way, everything's upside down in this book, right? Everything's upside down. The Satan is known as the, the father below. Jesus is known as the enemy. Uh, and and uh, the uh, Christians, or the Christian that is being dealt with in this book, is called the patient. So as these, these two demons were writing back and forth, one of the letters that Wormwood writes to Screwtape about his patient is that this Christian, or this guy, became a Christian. And, and Wormwood, being this young, inexperienced demon, he thinks he failed. He thinks he failed as a demon, and at this point he doesn't know what to do. Because it's like the, the, the patient has now gone to the enemy. But Screwtape writes back, and he says this. He says, here's what you need to do. When he is at church, draw his attention to the woman who sings off key. Draw his attention to the frumpy man with squeaky shoes. Draw his attention to, and the list goes on. And you see... You, do, you, do you see these, these things, the, these distractions? These are the ways in which the Satan, the evil one, the devil, works to deceive us through deception. And so we can add to this less. We can call it our phones, Twitter, text messages, things that come up during service. We can call it with the weather. We can talk, think about sports. Whatever it is, these things that seek to distract us from the eternal splendor of God to distract us from what's really going on in this room right now. And this is where the doling and the indifference to the gospel comes from. Oh, I've heard it before. I've heard it before. It's boring. Why do I pay attention? This, too, is a work of the enemy. See, he says, in seeing these absurdities, Man will, man will surely consider all this to be foolishness, including church. See, seeing these things, look at the, the frumpy man and the, the lady singing off key. You see those, this, these things? You will consider all of this to be foolishness. And it only makes us more and more blind to the cosmic realities of what's really taking place. And this is where the enlightenment helps with that, doesn't it? And comes in and says, none of it exists anyways. It's not real, or at least it doesn't have any real impact on my life. It's all absurd. There's no cosmic realities. And if this is what we believe, that our only reality is the here and now, 
then we will always miss the real battle at hand, and we will never take seriously the real battle. We'll never know how to fight. We'll never know how important it is to rely on the strength of the Lord. We'll depend on our own. Because if it's just me, if I'm just facing my own flesh and my own temptations with my flesh, then, then I can address that with an internet filter on my computer. Or I can uh, address that with not hanging out with these people anymore. Or I can address that by not going to those places anymore. But the temptation that we are facing, this pain, suffering, things that we face, is not always on the surface. So it's a campaign of distortion. It's a campaign of exaggeration and manipulations and lies that tempt us one way or another to focus on ourselves. To focus on ourselves. And so we the focus just on the physical will totally miss what's really happening. It goes on in, in the book, and he says that you know, that screw tape continues to disciple Wormwood. And he says, You don't have to get that guy. You don't have to get that guy with some of those one of those big sins. In fact, what he says here in this in this in the book, he says, Why use adultery? when golf will do. Now, I have nothing wrong with golf. I love golf. I'll go play golf with you if you ask me. There's nothing wrong with it. But do, can you see how these are things that could be distracting, how these are things that could be used by the enemy that are so deceptive that even the good things in our, in our life can be misconstrued and, and used to deceive us? So are we taking the reality of Satan seriously? There's so many Christians who never give a serious thought to how deceptive, deceitful, and destructive his, his work is. And he works in the darkness to, to deceive us. Remember back in chapter 4? Chapter 4, he tells us, and be, and, and be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Because in our anger, we can feel justified in it. And in that justification, we then act on that anger. Because we've been violated. We've been offended. So we give into it. We give into a full vent of it. All the while not knowing that we've given an opportunity to the devil. We've given him a foothold. He is strategic. He is strategic. The devil is strategic. His schemes and tactics, verse 11, his schemes and tactics against us. He is an expert in these strategies. He's an expert in deception and always scheming against us. Always scheming against us. This enemy is formidable and has thousands of years of experience of deception. I have 30. No, not even that. 14, 15, 20 years of being a Christian. He has thousands of years of deception with many men who have been deceived. How else does, does one walk with the Son of God for three years and then betray Him? Deceive that money is worth more and more valuable than being satisfied in Christ. How else does, does, does Peter himself, just hours later, deny Jesus? Deceived that his safety is more important than the truth. He lies to us. He lies to us about where happiness can be found. 
He lies to us. He uses the, the world to tempt us. He uses our, the weakness of our flesh to, to entice us. And He knows exactly where we are weak. He knows, exact, he knows exactly where I'm weak. And He doesn't waste His time coming to me and says, with, with people trying to offer me drugs. He doesn't waste His time that way. He doesn't waste His time with me becoming an alcoholic. But he has the, the ways that he deceives. My comfort, my, my laziness that he comes after me on. and says, Ben, it's okay for you to loathe around. You deserve it to, to binge on TV. Deceive. Or, or go play golf. Whatever it, it is. He deceives us. Anything that he would use as a distraction to distort the good things in my life, that that is where I'll find comfort, that that is where I'll find satisfaction and happiness and not in the Lord. And that is the point of the screw tape letters, is to expose that and to bring all that to light. Satan is at war with us. He is the one that we are wrestling with. And the, this word is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it has the idea, of course, of a, of a wrestling match, but, but, but in, in greater context, two, two soldiers who would wrestle. That we are, at, we are at war with him. And our battle's not with flesh and blood, but with, with evil ones and all of his minions and deceit and, and demons. And that's what that list is, is all about in, in, in verse 12. So our, our enemy is not the world. Our enemy is Satan and his demons. Oh, how we have, we've bought into another one of his lies. In, in American evangelicalism, we bought into this, this lie that our enemy is the Democrat Party. Or our enemy is politicians or thugs or even Muslims or ISIS or, or a liberal Supreme Court. And so we'll get, we'll get all riled up that we just squash this enemy. We're the church. Let's stand up against it. And we make war on flesh and blood, not realizing the cosmic powers that are behind everything. This present dark, of this present darkness. And he uses those things. Absolutely does he use those things. But let us not make the mistake in not understanding our enemy in his intent. And his intent is to make war on us and to destroy us. 1 Peter 5 eight. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's not playing with us. He is working to destroy. He is working to, to kill. He hates us. He hates us. He hates the truth. He hates you. He hates me. He hates your families. He hates this church. He hates God. He hates Jesus. He hates the gospel. He hates the Bible. And all of these things he seeks to undermine. He hates the truth. He's at war. He's with you and war with me and the church because he hates the truth. He hates God's word and Jesus, the Bible. He hates all that stuff. He hates good books. He hates that table right there. What's on that? He hates it. He hates the book that you're holding in your hand. He hates it. He seeks to undermine it. And there's a lot of preachers and churches that teach and believe parts of what he does. Some things that he advocates to not love the truth. He wants to hide it from us. 
Because the truth is our primary weapon, as we'll talk about next week, we put on the, the belt of truth. The belt is our primary weapon in our defense against him. That's why he does everything he can to keep us from reading the Bible. You realize that? Why do you struggle reading the Bible? Or never read the Bible? Except for maybe it's not. Why? I mean, why? Why? How is it? Keeps you from it. From understanding it. Keeps you from it. And if we're reading it, he keeps us, he, he attempts to try to keep us from believing it. And if you believe it, he'll, he'll keep you from being obedient to it. He'll keep you from speaking it. Matthew 13, the parable of the sower in, chapter, in verse 4, shows us what he does here. The seed scattered along the path. You know what happens? The bird instantly comes by and snatches it up. And Jesus tells us that the birds are the evil ones. Snatching it up. So, oh, how the, the, the gospel weakly falls along the path and the, and the evil one snatches it up in our hearts to not, to not believe it, to not apply it. It's an enemy who's working to, to dull our senses to the gospel, to, to deceive us and to destroy us. We must be vigilant toward our enemy seeking to destroy us and even now pick up those seeds of the gospel before we can let them take root in our hearts. And we put on Christ. I won't spend too much line here in verse 13, but we put on Christ. We make war by putting on Christ. We're going to talk about this next week in, in, in its complete... We put on Christ. Because Christ is the one who has defeated the works of the evil one. We can have confidence that we can stand firm in this life even now. All hope isn't lost, right? Because the strength is in, in the Lord. Yeah, He is a great enemy. But we have, have, we have one who has gone before us. One who has paved the way. One who has won the battle. Who has won the war. And so we put on that armor to win the battle where we will stand. He's real. And He is working to deceive and to hide the truth from us. But Christ is whom we put on. I'm going to close reading Hebrews 2.14. You can turn there and I think it will be put up. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. You see that verse? Christ himself, he, he partook of the same things, meaning he took on flesh and blood, be like his, his children, those whom he came to save, so that he may, through death, might destroy the one who has the power of death. Christmas, Christmas is all about Jesus destroying the works of the devil. You see that? 
He has destroyed through His death the power of death. And the power of death is the power of Satan, the devil. He's crippled. He's, he's crippled, and he knows it, because all of our sins, those who are his children, those of his elect, our sins have been covered. Our sins have been atoned for. He may tempt us. And by the way, this is what's crazy. He tempts us to do something, and then he'll stand before us and accuse us of the thing we gave into. What a deceiver. I get angry about that. <laughs> I'm sorry. He may accuse us, but Jesus has disarmed him, taking that weapon from him because he has no legitimate ground now to stand to accuse us. None. Our sin, our sin and, and death was his ultimate weapon, but Jesus totally disarmed him. The death penalty has been paid, and we have been made righteous. A righteousness that's not of our own, but we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, that your life will never be lost. Death will never have victory over his children, ultimately. So let us stand firm in the strength and the might of our God. Brothers and sisters, let us not let the evil one re rob us of great joy this Advent season. But let us remember the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray now that as we respond, that you would let us respond in truth. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth this morning. The evil one will not distract us and take the seeds of this good news from us to distract us with such trivial things such as sports and life and what we're going to do for lunch. Help us to find great joy in Christ, great joy in the in the gospel this morning. Because that is where our strength lies. Be with us, Ruth, as to the glory of your name. Amen.